Please remain standing for the reading of God's Word. Our sermon comes from Jonah 3 this morning, but before we turn there, let us turn to Paul's letter to the Philippians in chapter 2, beginning in verse 3. Philippians 2, starting in verse 3. Beloved people of God, uh, this is God's holy, infallible, and abiding word. Give your full attention to it. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each one of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this in mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Let's turn now to Jonah chapter 3. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Uh, Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. And they called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he, is, and he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let them, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Let us pray. O Lord our God, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, our Lord, our Rock, and our Redeemer, in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. 
So I don't normally do this, uh, but I'm going to skip our regular introduction and just get into the text. Uh, so here's the big idea I want us to hold on to this morning. Uh, God shows you compassion and kindness when you repent and humble yourself before Him. God shows you compassion and kindness when you repent and humble yourself before Him. And our outline will go like this, three C's, charge, contrition, compassion. Charge, contrition, and compassion. And so the story picks up with the word of the Lord coming to Jonah a second time. It's really the same thing in verse 1 of the book, uh, where it says, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai. Uh, But a lot has happened since then. Uh, I mean, here's a little snapshot so far. Uh, Jonah ran away. God pursued him with a storm. The sailors threw Jonah into the water. God saved the sailors, and God saved Jonah from the belly of a big fish. But now, we're back to square one. Jonah is ready to start again. He's ready to to take on the call of God. But this time, as someone reborn from death, someone who has escaped the deep waters. But at this point, we should be asking, uh, what's going to be different? What's going to be different? Will Jonah do what he is told? Will he hold up his end of the bargain? Because nothing has changed on God's part. He gives Jonah the same call, just a second time. I think there are some of us here who aren't convinced that God is like this, that he's a God of second chances, You know, especially when we've blown it, uh, when we've badly screwed up our lives. We think, I'm done for. Uh, God will never forgive me. But this is the kind of God that we have. He's the God of second chances. Dare I say, even countless chances. Despite of all your running away, despite of all your failures, of all of your sin, He comes and He still calls you. God does not give up on you. But what we see here is not simply... God giving Jonah a second chance. What we encounter here is God's deep forgiveness. God fully accepts Jonah's repentance. I mean, he could have said, you know what, Jonah, I forgive you, but go home, right? Go home, I'll send somebody else, someone more dependable than you. I mean, that makes sense, right? (laughs) But God doesn't do that. He sends Jonah a second time despite what he's done, to do the same mission. That's so much unlike us, isn't it? We don't like giving people second chances, at least not like that. But what if our forgiveness to others looked like that? That we don't hold grudges, but we forgive, giving them the best of chances. Jonah seems to be a changed man after the word comes to him a second time. So he gets up from where he is and he goes to Nineveh. So far, so good. He's complying uh, with God's will. He did it 
as the writer says, according to the word of the Lord. Now, verse 3 tells us something important about God's heart for Nineveh. Uh, The SV says, now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city. Uh, Some of your translations might say something like, uh, Nineveh was an extremely large city or an extraordinarily great city. But literally it says, now Nineveh was a great city before God or to God. So it's not only that Nineveh is big in space, but it's big in God's heart. It matters to him. And we'll find out just how much in chapter 4. The three days it takes to walk Nineveh uh, should be fresh on our minds. Well, maybe not because it's it's been a while since I last uh, preached on Jonah. Uh, But what just happened to him in chapter 2? Jonah was in the belly of a big fish for three days and three nights. And so it's like God is calling him to do the same thing, to go into a place of death, to die to, to himself and to trust God in the midst of it. And so Jonah begins his long walk through the city. But after only one day of walking, he stops. Hammer time. And, and delivers a message of seeming destruction to Nineveh. You know, here's the thing. Uh, Jonah obeys, but he doesn't really do it with his whole heart. He does it with a divided heart. Because on the one hand, he wants to do what God has been calling him to do. He gets it. He's learned his lesson. But on the other hand, he still despises these people. I mean, after all, these are goyim. These are his enemies. I think this is why the author takes the time to tell us about how long it takes to travel Nineveh. Three days walk in the heart of your enemies is a long and hard walk. And this is why uh, the writer tells us that Jonah only travels one day because it reveals Jonah's... divided heart. I think what's interesting here too is that the word began uh, gives us another clue uh, to Jonah's divided heart. Because this word has a double meaning. Yes, it can uh, mean to begin, but it can also mean to profane or to defile as in uh, this word is found in Leviticus 19. I think we all know this verse. You shall not swear by my name falsely, and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. It's that same word, profane, or begin. So by only beginning his mission, by only going one day instead of three days, Jonah Jonah is actually profaning or defiling his calling because it shows his unwillingness to go all the way. But what does Jonah say to Nineveh? He says in the Hebrew, Od or Bayim Yom Nineveh Nepaket. That's it. That's all he says. Five words in the Hebrew. In the ESV, it says, Yet forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. What kind of message is that? Right? First of all, 
Jonah doesn't even mention God, right? That's crazy. You're a prophet of God and you don't even mention God. It seems on the surface like pure judgment. And second of all, it's super short. I mean, don't you think it reveals his attitude, right? The curt, short message to Nineveh. You know someone is mad at you when they only say a few words to you. I mean, how many of you have heard this? Fine, do whatever you want, right? You know somebody's mad at you when they say that. And it seems the shorter the sentence, the more mad they are at you. I think that's what Jonah is doing right here. He's mad at these people. So his message is super short. And so you can kind of sense Jonah grinning at this point. He's rubbing his hands together uh, because Jonah would be excited if Nineveh was overthrown. But we know that God wants to show mercy to Nineveh because that's what Jonah says in the next chapter. Uh, but how in the world is this mercy and compassion? Uh, this is the same kind of overthrowing that God did to Sodom and Gomorrah in, in Genesis 19, where it says, And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities that grew uh, and what grew on the ground. You know, Jonah is probably saying, if this becomes like that, then I'll be super happy because these are my enemies. I'll be happy because they're going to get what they deserve. But I think there's a kind of pun happening here in the Hebrew because the word for overthrow doesn't just mean destruction. It can also mean to turn over as in from one way to another. Uh, do you remember what Balaam uh, tried when Balaam, Balaam tried to curse Israel, but God wasn't having any of that. Listen to what he says in Deuteronomy 23, and you'll find the same word. But the Lord your God would not listen to Balaam. Instead, the Lord your God turned, that is to overthrow or overturn the curse into a blessing for you, because the Lord your God loved you. God takes Balaam's curse and overturns it into a blessing. So both senses of the word are there in Jonah's message. And so here's the thing. Jonah wants destruction. The Lord wants repentance. You know, if you don't like talking to people, here's what you should do. Start talking to them about God's judgment. It's a good way to avoid people. Uh, because judgment makes people uncomfortable. It even makes us uncomfortable, to be honest. Uh, we don't know what to do with it, so we often just gloss over it through Scripture and we don't talk about it. But why is judgment such a bad word? I think it's because people think judgment is the opposite of love. Right? We love when we talk about God's love all the time. But we don't like it when we talk about God's judgments because we think they're in opposite. A loving God would never judge me. Right? That's what we hear from our culture. But let me tell you this. 
the opposite of judgment isn't love. The opposite of judgment is indifference. If God didn't care, if God was indifferent about sin, if God doesn't render judgment against evil, God is not loving. And you know what? We actually can't have the gospel without a God who renders judgment against sin. Our hope is that God will render judgment against sin and make everything right one day. That's the hope of the gospel, right? And it's ridiculous not to render judgment against sin. It's like, it's like seeing two kids playing and one of them is bullying the other kid. It's not, do you think it'd be loving to say, oh, you know what? They're gonna do what they're gonna do. Let him beat, beat him up. They'll figure it out. No, if you don't, if you don't break that up, that's actually not loving on your part. Right? And by the way, this is the reason, this is the real reason that people don't turn to God. It's, it's really not because they don't have proof for his existence or they're not intellectually, uh, interested enough. They don't have the intellectual proof for him. No, it's because they don't want to be judged by him. Don't judge me, bro, right? And so how's Nineveh going to respond to Jonah's message? A message of seeming destruction. And so this brings us to our second point, uh, contrition. Well, Jonah's five-word message is the most successful sermon ever. Five words. And the people of Nineveh believed. Uh, you know, that's mine and Pastor Brett's dream, to preach five words to you. And then you get it and you believe and that's it. I call it a day. But it's probably never going to happen. So we have to write like 3,000 word sermons. And, and even still, we're hoping you get it and you believe, you know. But these people, they believed Jonah. Actually, it doesn't say that, does it? It says the people of Nineveh believed God. His name wasn't even mentioned, but yet they believed God. That's remarkable. Because God uses Jonah even when his intentions are all wrong. They believe God despite his contempt for them. You know, and this kind of believing is more than just mental assent. Uh, It's more than just saying in your head, oh yeah, uh, I agree with that. I, I know it in my head. That's actually not true faith in the Bible. Faith in God is always accompanied with repentance. Uh, Calvin, we all revere Calvin. Uh, Calvin called this God's double grace. You can't have one without the other. Repentance and faith. Faith and repentance. You find that all over the place in the New Testament. They go together. And do you know that these people took the word seriously? Uh, the people actually do something with what they've heard. Uh, they call for a fast and put on sackcloth. And I'll be honest, 
I know a lot of us are suspicious when we hear the word fasting. Uh, fasting is what those pious evangelicals do. But fasting is simply a physical way of asking for help, asking for mercy. I love how one writer puts it. He says this, Fasting is the body's way of praying. You voluntarily empty yourself and make yourself miserable so that God may have mercy, as if your belly itself were crying, See how empty I am. I have no strength and no helper. Or you who are merciful, see how deep in my need is my need and have mercy on me. Isn't that cool? Our stomach, it's like our stomachs are saying, Have mercy on me, O Lord. And speaking of an outwardly sign of asking for help and mercy, that's what putting on sackcloth is all about here. It's super uncomfortable. It's the scratchy stuff that beggars would wear. Go ahead and imagine that for a second. Uh, Putting on basically a potato sack made of goat hair all over your skin, you know, all over your body, your back, your chest, your private parts, you know. Super itchy. But that says, Lord, your mercy is more important than my own skin. That's how serious I am about you, Lord. That's how I'm, how much I need mercy. More than my own skin. And so let me ask you this this morning. What does your repentance look like? What does it look like physically for you to say to God, Lord, have mercy. Not to put on a show when everyone is looking, but to make visible what's already in your heart. Like, what does that look like for you? Maybe some of you is fasting from technology. You know how much of a, of a crutch our technology has been. We spend more time on our devices than we do in our scriptures. Or maybe it's actually fasting, you know, not eating for a while and seeking God's face. And so everyone in Nineveh was serious about turning to God. It says, from the greatest of them to the least of them, not a single person was left out. And I mean, that's, that's crazy, unimaginable. From five words, all of them were repenting. You know, I I get super giddy when one person repents. Imagine a whole city. It's like everyone in Olympia all repenting all at the same time. Wouldn't that be wonderful? I'd love to see that. (laughs) If the people's repentance is surprising, I think what happens next uh, is even more surprising. The word goes all the way to the king. The greatest of them encounters the word. Excuse me. I think it's fascinating that the word comes to the king. Remember, this is the same word that came to Jonah uh, two times. It's active and it's confronting. The question is, what will this king do with it? I mean, he could have easily ignored it or silenced it. Uh, what are those crazy people doing? No one's going to destroy Nineveh. We're the greatest city in the world. Or he could have said, where's that guy Jonah? I'm going to skin him alive. 
Why would he say something like that? Skinning people alive. I mean, they actually did that to their enemies. You know, you know, pride has a way of doing that. Uh, it takes away the threat of having to lower ourselves. But that, but that is not what the king does. I mean, look what he does. It's very unexpected. He gets up from his throne, removes his robe, and covers himself with itchy potato bags. Then he sits in ashes, the dust of the ground. You notice the king's movement? He becomes like one of his people. The king goes from high to low. He goes from his shiny throne to the dirty ground. He takes off his royal robe and puts on an itchy potato sack. Do you know what that's called? That's called humility. And not only that, the king issues a decree to repent. He's telling all of Nineveh to turn their lives upside down. Because remember who the Ninevites were. We're not talking about some goody-two-shoes type of people here. We're talking about violent oppressors. These are the type of people who would capture a city violently and impale their leaders on big sticks in front of the city so that whoever passed by knew they were there. These are violent people. But the king demands that they turn from their evil way to put down their weapons and to seek God's mercy. This king is so serious that he even called for the animals to repent. <laughs> uh, I think that's funny stuff. I mean, it's very comedic. What the heck are animals repenting for, right? Eating someone else's grass? Uh, not providing enough milk? What's that all about? Here's what I think. I think God is actually telling Jonah something by the king uh, telling animals uh, to repent. Because Jonah sees the Ninevites like animals. Right? That's actually how the Bible describes violent uh, people. People who have defaced the image of God. People who have turned away from God because uh, have become like beasts of the field. That's their judgment. They become like animals. We've seen that in Revelation, right? That's what the image of the beast is all about, a ruined humanity. You know, Daniel tells us that Nebuchadnezzar, he rebelled, and he became like a beast uh, in the field. He ate grass like cattle. And so what's God saying here? Jonah, even those people that you see that you see and treat like animals can turn back to me. They are never too far from my grace. They can repent and find mercy. And to be honest, uh, all this repentance talk makes us, makes some of us uneasy. You know, I, I thought it was all about grace. Are you saying that we earn God's kindness? Uh, let me be clear. Uh, I'm not saying that we earn anything before God. It will only be by God's grace and kindness. And I think the king realizes that too. 
Uh, he says something very similar to the, um, to what the captain says in chapter one. He says, who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that he, so that we may not perish. Does that sound like a man who thought he could earn God's favor? No. No, that's a man who knew full well that he didn't deserve it. God can still judge him and his people. Jesus himself sees the Ninevites as good examples. Uh, To him, they serve as a pattern for turning to God. Uh, In fact, Jesus says in Matthew 12, the men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Yeah, if you think that the the Ninevites were just too pious, that they're not good examples for us, you got to reckon with what Jesus says. They repented, and they repented well. So the question is, do we repent well? I mean, we never approach God with a resume. Because the moment we do, the seemingly good things that we do are no longer signs of repentance. They become signs of pride. Hey God, look at me. Look what I can do. Now pay me. That's not how it works. So the question now is, is there hope uh, for the people and their king? And this brings us to our last point, and I'll keep this one short. So the word of judgment has become a word of grace for them. Instead of being overthrown, they are overturned from their evil way. The Lord saw how they turned in repentance to him. And so the king's question, who knows, has been answered. God sees. God knows. Because God doesn't overlook people who turn from their sin. And because Nineveh turned from their evil, God turned from the destruction he said he would do. I mean, literally in the Hebrew it says, God turned from the evil he was about to do to them. Of course, we know God doesn't do evil in the same way that we do evil, right? But God, but God turns back his judgment. He relents from the judgment that he uh, was about to do to them. I mean, we call that compassion. Because God will not ignore true repentance. He will honor it by showing mercy. We have a king in Jesus. Jesus, the king, has come down to identify with you. Like the king of Nineveh, Jesus came down from his throne. He humbled himself to the ground. He took off his royal garb and put on sackcloth of flesh. He went down and shared in human ashes so so that he might show kindness to you. And not only that, but Jesus took on God's judgment for you. Because his love for you is greater than death. He went all the way to the cross because he has compassion for you. 
I want to read again from Philippians 2. Uh, but this time from another translation. Uh, it's called the Complete Jewish uh, Bible Translation. I know we're very familiar with this passage, so uh, listen to it in, in just this different way of um, putting it. Though he was in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God something to be possessed by force. On the contrary, he emptied himself. In that way, he took the form of a slave by becoming like human beings are. And when he appeared as a human being, he humbled himself still more by becoming obedient, obedient even to death, death on a stake as a criminal. Therefore God raised him to the highest place and gave him the name above every name, that in honor of the name given to Yeshua, every knee will bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue will acknowledge that, that Yeshua, the Messiah, is Adonai, or Lord, to the glory of God, the Father. You see, that's Jesus' movement. From high to low to high again. You see, that's our movement. Our movement is to humble ourselves that we might be exalted. Right? What does that look like for us? To humble ourselves like the king. Because if our king was willing to go low, shouldn't we, like him, go low and humble ourselves? Let me just close with this reflection. I think every one of us knows people, people we deeply love, who seem so far away from God. Let me tell you this. Don't lose hope. God is able to turn the most God-hating people into believing and repentant people. Because if He can do it for Nineveh, He can do it for your atheist neighbor. He can do it for your loved ones who have walked away from Jesus. And so warn them with love that those who believe and repent will be met with kindness. And those who humble themselves will be lifted up. And this morning, there's a table of compassion in front of you. It's a reminder that God's kindness has appeared at the cross, where His body was broken and where His blood was shed. And that those who repent of their sins, God will never cast away. Amen? Let's pray. Our Father, we are thankful for your word, a word, yes, of judgment, but also with hope. And Lord, we, we ask that you would use your word to bring us back to yourself, that we might repent and find grace and mercy and kindness in you. Oh Lord, we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.